Welcome to Gathering Gold. This is Cheryl Paul. And I'm Victoria Russell. So you might have noticed that there's been a change. We've changed the name of the podcast. (laughs) It's a little funny because the first episode of the podcast was all about the name at the time. (laughs) But here we are. We made a change and we're going to tell you a little bit about the new name of the podcast. Yes. And we were just having a good laugh about it before we started recording. So that, that laughter is in our voice, but it wasn't, it wasn't so funny when it first hit us that we needed to change the name. We both dove headlong into this project, which is pretty uncharacteristic of both of us. We are both planners and quite meticulous and thorough researchers And then two days after we announced and released the podcast, we hit an unexpected roadblock that had to do with the name. And it threw us off. It threw us off track, which felt unsettling in the moment. We both took a deep breath. But fairly quickly, we both realized that there were many silver linings embedded in this block and that it was actually an opportunity to course correct. And we, we talked about how there was probably some part of us in some subconscious layer that knew that if we thought too much about it, that we wouldn't do it. And it, it's like, it's what I tell people when they have a baby and they realize how hard it is. And I say, if you thought too much about it ahead of time, you would never do it. So this really defines one of the core characteristics of the anxious mind. We overthink, we overanalyze. This can definitely be a gift at times to think things through thoroughly, but it can also stop us in our tracks when it leads to analysis paralysis, that if we, if we think things through so much and we anticipate every scenario that might go wrong, which is the anxious brain, that is its job, that we will be too scared to act. We'll be too scared of making a mistake. We'll be too scared of something going wrong. So we took that opportunity to reflect, to rethink. It could have hijacked the entire podcast, but we recognized that it really was an opportunity and that it speaks to one of the core aspects that I talk about, one of the core mindsets, which is that nothing is set in stone. There's, there's no such thing as perfection and there's always room to course correct. And I think in fact, we are often course correcting, if not always course correcting, because it's it's a way of moving through life that recognizes that there is no perfection, there is no perfect end goal. So we we took those steps back. We had some really important essential conversations between the two of us that we were both reluctant to have. <laughs> and we both feel, I think at this point, that it's going to lead to a much better podcast in the long run. So I'm curious, I'm curious about your take on all of that, Victoria. Yeah. I mean, when we first realized, oh, we're going to change the name, my immediate reaction was what I often go to is like, oh, I didn't do a good enough job. Like I should have dot, dot, dot. And oh no, Cheryl's going to think I'm a terrible podcast producer and co-host or, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh no, people are going to be so confused. Mm-hmm. But I actually do think it's kind of a great, I don't know. It's, it's 
good modeling for some of, of your work and approach to life of course correcting. And it made me think about another podcast I like. It's called the Rob cast and mm. it's with Rob Bell. Mm-hmm. He has an episode from a couple of years ago about the Hebrew word teshuva. So I think yeah. you'll like this. Yes. <laughs> Meaning to return. Mm-hmm. A word that has often been translated as repent, but he was saying that another translation is to return yeah. and that it's a moment for celebration when you realize, oh, when you realize you've been going down a path and you have to switch, you have to change course. It's a moment of celebration when that you realized that, and now you get to go back onto the path you want to be on. So it's not a bad thing. It's something to celebrate. Yes. And I, I think about that all the time, ever since I heard that episode of his podcast. Mm. And I also was thinking to myself, you know, my mind, my anxious part of my brain tends to go immediately to urgency and catastrophe and, oh, this is a problem. And, and I'm getting a little bit better at slowing down and going, is this even a problem? (laughs) You know, like Mm -hmm. hmm, maybe it's not even really a problem. Like there are problems. And then there are things that are just, oh, we're going to make an adjustment. Yes. And I loved what you texted to me in one of our conversations around this, that this particular format of podcasts are actually very flexible and bendable. Um, There's room to change the name. There's room to change the logo. There's room to change the timeframe. And I think even that is a great metaphor for life that we think it's, we think so much is catastrophe and, and most things aren't, at least in our you know, privileged lives. Um, it doesn't mean that that the suffering isn't real, and we'll be talking more about suffering. But um, I love that you were able to zoom out from that. Is this really a problem? And not only is it not really a problem, but that it ended up being a gift. It ended up there. Ended up being a huge silver lining, a gold lining, you could say. A gold lining, one could <laughs> say. <laughs> yes. And that I think we were able to pivot really quickly with it. And it very quickly became this opportunity to redefine and re-envision and slow things down a little bit, take all of that wonderful energy that we had of diving into this project and bringing some other part of our brain to it. And, and I think it's, you know, these, these two pivotal figures in the psychology world, Carol Dweck, whose book Mindset is so extraordinary, where she talks about the growth mindset or the fixed mindset. And having this growth mindset allows us to, like you're saying with the Rabel analogy of Teshuva, which I love so much, that we are we are always in a sense in Teshuva. We are always from a day-to-day, on a day-to-day basis, we have this opportunity to reset to return, to come home, especially if we are viewing ourselves through this lens of growth, through this lens of learning. And then Daniel Siegel's book, Mindsight, um, where he talks about our mind's capacity to reflect and really growing that that witness, um, allows us to approach life and healing and our inner world and our decisions through a lens that allows us to make mistakes. 
that allows us to go, oops, we messed up. What can we learn? How can we grow? And this is part of how we turn the lead of our lives into gold. So talking a bit about the name, at one of the primary metaphors of Jungian psychology is this alchemical idea of turning lead into gold, that the lead of our lives, the heaviness, the suffering, the shadow, when approached through these lenses of learning, of the growth mindset, of witness, reflection, mindsight, allows us to transform the lead into gold. And there's so much to flesh out in that, but when I think of gathering gold, I think about the gold that I've gathered in my life has come mostly from the lead, from the suffering, from the pain. And it's this somewhat frustrating, at times frustrating reality of being human that we do we do grow most during times of pain. And that's why we have growing pains. So when I imagine gathering gold, it's, it's imagining where I am at this stage of life at age 49 in the, the middle of this portal of midlife, gathering, gathering these runes, gathering these pieces of wisdom, knowing that we are infinitely always on the journey of learning and growing. But what do I have to share at 49. What do I have to share as I'm crossing over this threshold into the second half of life? What do I share from what I've learned working with people over these past 25 years, helping them in some way transform their lead, their suffering, their heaviness, their shame, their burdens, especially the shame of being a highly sensitive person that I think is almost impossible not to absorb growing up in this culture where sensitivity is not seen as a gift, that those shame layers sit on top of the core pain of life, that the, the pain that is going to happen just by being human. And so being able to gather those runes, gather those nuggets, gather those strands of wisdom from what I've, what I've seen, what I've learned, what I've been able to witness of the people that I've worked with, that I've been so, so blessed to work with at such deep levels, really traveling beside them into their world of anxiety, intrusive thoughts, so many places of suffering that when viewed through a certain lens, mostly through a lens of compassion and curiosity, transforms. And the almost unspeakable gift, I hardly even have words for the gift of being able to watch people, witness people, guide people, accompany people, midwife, people, souls, psyches, through those passageways of suffering into into soaring, into being able to live out their gifts. What I think is so 
helpful for people about the way that you talk about sensitivity is that I think the way you talk about it is like, it's not even that, that that's lead turning into gold. It's that it's like buried treasure. Hmm. Like it never was lead, you know, but that your sensitivity is this buried treasure that people have in society, you know, whatever has forced underground. Yes. And that you're kind of helping people dig in and, and open up the treasure chest and go, no, this is what makes you, you, it's all part of you. Hmm. And it's that imagination and deep feeling and deep love and attunement to loss and attunement to danger, but attention to detail, you know, Yes, that is not bad. It never was. Yeah. It's just buried. Well, Victoria, funny you should mention buried treasure. Hmm. Because when I was sitting with what the new name might be, and I wrote down all kinds of names and ideas and words that were coming to me, and one of them was something about a treasure, and I flashed on one of the most pivotal dreams of my life that I call, and I just pulled it up. And I'm going to read it. It's called Mm -hmm. Treasure in the Garden. And I had it on June 8th, 2020. So almost exactly one year ago, 11 months ago. And I have sat with this dream and written about the dream and brought it to my spiritual teacher, guide, rabbi, therapist, and shared it with my soul sister friends. And it's, to me, it's one of the dreams that will guide me into the second half of life. So I will read it. It also speaks to another nod in our new name, Gathering Gold, which connects to the book Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And she has another book called Gathering Moss. And in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, she has a chapter called The Three Sisters, where she talks about one of the indigenous planting methods of planting beans, corn, and squash all together because they each support the other. The bean climbs up the corn and the corn is the support and the squash creates the shade and the ground covering. And so they, they each add different nutrients the beans add the nitrogen and, and she, she explains because she's a botanist what each one adds. And it's this incredibly beautiful metaphor for our interconnectivity, how much we need each other, how much that everything hinges on connection, our connection to ourselves. To, and we, we touched on this in the first episode and connection to others, connection to the invisible And so in the dream, I'm digging in the garden so I can try to plant pole beans and maybe the three sisters where the pole beans are now and all along the west fence. But everywhere I dig, I hit 
what I think is rock. I keep digging deeper and deeper, and then I realize it's not rock, but steps all along that west side. They're concrete ancient steps about three to four feet down, like something you would see in ancient baths, like a mikvah, wide and long, more like a bench. I start shoveling more and more soil out of the way, knowing this is very special. Maybe this will be a patio entrance to my garden, a sacred place down low where I can sit and nobody can see me. The more I reveal, the more I see that it's more than steps. There are beautiful wooden chairs here, maybe a table that have been left by my grandparents. Then Rabbi Mark comes in to help me, the two of us shoveling away the soil. I'm working faster and faster. I'm completely energized by this. We're shoveling in in the way we would shovel snow. We're seeing more and more. Then Rabbi Mark says, this is more than a patio with table and chairs. There's an opening here. If you open the hatch, you'll find letters that your grandparents have left for you. They hid them in the garden. They've been here all these years and I never knew. Oh my gosh. That's so beautiful. Makes me cry. Yeah. Mm. So it's to me, this, there's so much here, the ancestral line connecting to our lineage but also this piece that we all have the treasure hidden in our garden. Yes, it's the sensitivity. I think there's also the ancestral piece, the treasures that have been lost, but that it's right here in our own garden. It's not somewhere out there. And I think we're living in this culture in a way that presents, maybe it's always been this way, that the answers are somewhere out there. Somebody else has that roadmap. Somebody else has your treasures. And central to the way I work, to the whole Jungian psychology mindset is that when we dig down deep, we're digging into the unconscious. If we dig deep enough, we dig into the collective unconscious. We have our own treasures. It's just about learning the tools and the mindsets, the practices that allow us to find those treasures, that that's our gold, that gathering gold really means gathering your own treasures in your own garden, sifting through, digging through those layers of dirt, of shame, darkness, shadow, being willing to dig, being willing to go down into the pain and trusting that we will find gold there. You know, it's coming to me as well. I was actually just reading parts of your book again over the weekend. Mm. Shameless plug for the <laughs> wisdom of anxiety. <laughs> and I was just struck by even these very human things that we think we need to squash or eradicate or stamp out like longing. You know, it's not even, it's not even shame or pain. It's just 
longing, which is so human. And yet for some reason we think, oh, if I'm feeling longing, that must mean something's wrong and something has to change Yes, about me or about my life, or I've done something wrong, or maybe I am bad in some way, because why am I longing when I have maybe, maybe you have everything you think, you know, mm. you should need. Mm. And I was just thinking about how I don't think creation is possible without longing. Hmm. Like every good, every poem I've ever written that I like that feels special to me Mm -hmm. came out of longing, maybe even directly speaks about it. Mm. Yes. Yes. That it's all gold. That the longing is our goal, not something to get rid of. Mm-hmm. That our grief is our goal. Our sensitivity is our goal. Right? And sometimes it is the strength embedded in what we see as challenge. And sometimes like what you're saying, it's the thing itself. It's the sensitivity itself. There's nothing to transform or change about it. That the sensitivity itself is what allows us to be empathic, attuned, connected, moral, conscientious, all of these incredibly positive strengths, qualities, gifts, treasures. And yes, it's, it's, it's those micro moments that I, I love to name and write about so much, the longing, you know, that chapter on longing, it wasn't even going to be its own chapter, but it was my editor who said, I think longing needs to be its own chapter. Yeah. It's yeah. so important and under discussed and not named. Yeah. I think that sometimes for someone experiencing anxiety with so much fear of loss, maybe even someone who experienced enmeshment. Mm it's actually profoundly terrifying to imagine that all of the gold is inside Hmm. because I think it can make us feel that, that, that there is a sense of aloneness to being a human. If we look back to the dream, you can see that I'm not alone. Yeah. I don't believe we can gather our gold alone. Hmm. I really don't. We need others on the journey. We need guides. We need mentors. We need what the role of rabbi and priest has played. And for many people, that's falling away. But it was a rabbi in the dream, and I don't, it's not a literal figure necessarily. Right. And there's so much to that dream. Again, my own inner masculine shows up, but also the spiritual leader one of the spiritual leaders in our community here in Boulder. There was also my grandparents in the dream. There's that ancestral place where when we really connect into that, we know we are never, ever alone. We are so disconnected from that framework, that way of living, that way of viewing reality in the West, that it's part of what creates that sense of, profound aloneness that Mm -hmm. so many of us feel 
that profound sense of disconnect. If we had active relationships with our ancestors, even in the imaginal realm, even if you don't really believe that your grandmother is still here somewhere, um, although it brings to mind that Taylor Swift song. Yeah. Yes. Marjorie. Yeah. She so beautifully expresses the sense that you're, you're never, she's never dead. How does she say it? Do you remember the line? She says, um, what died didn't stay dead. You're alive. So alive. And she says, if I didn't know better, I think you were listening to me now. And later, I think, I think you were singing to me now. And then there's actually a little bit of recording of her grandmother singing. It gives me chills just hearing you read those lyrics. And that song made me cry so much when you told me it was about her grandmother. Yeah. We know, we know we are not alone. Some part of us knows, but even if that sounds ridiculous to you, if you have more of a scientist brain, I get it. I, my, my son is that way, but there's still some part that in the imaginal realm can, can have those conversations with our departed loved ones. And so when I say the gold is inside of you, I don't mean that it's your task to find it by yourself. What I mean is that it's not outside of you, that it's not, no one else is going to fix you, rescue you, make you feel alive. Not any therapist, not any partner, not any friend. They can't do it for you, but they can accompany you on those exploratory journeys into self. And I think they must because I think it's part of our attachment wounds are around feeling alone, whether it's enmeshment or abandonment, that that deep sense of feeling so alone in those early years, not feeling seen, not feeling felt is a critical part of our healing that can only happen in relationship Mm. to safe other. That's why therapy can be utterly transformative with, with the right match, you know, with, with a safe, skilled, loving, compassionate therapist. So I'm so glad that you named that piece of how terrifying that can sound. But I hope that, I hope it makes sense what I'm saying in response. It does. It's, it's also part of cultivating that non-dual mind that can say, yes, there is something, there's an aspect to the human experience where there's loneliness and aloneness, but that's an experience we can have sometimes, but that there is a deeper connection and finding your gold doesn't mean you're going to go run off and live alone on a mountain now because, oh, you've, <laughs> no. you've, you've found your gold and you're everything you need, right? <laughs> In fact, part of finding your gold means finding your people. Mm. Finding the people who get you, who love you unconditionally, mm. that therapist, that mentor, that's part of finding your gold. It's not that they are carrying it for you. It's that it is 
pure goal to find any human on this planet who gets you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's part of finding your gold is in the friendship, in the relationships. It's not just an internal experience at all. Yes, that's an element of it. A big piece is that central column, that trunk that we talked about in the first episode, right? Knowing ourselves, knowing our mind, having a loving relationship with our emotional lives, tending to our bodies, being in that soul realm, what fills the soul. But that's just one layer, Mm. right? Going back to the tree analogy, that's just, that's the trunk. And then we have all the branches coming off that are, are, essential places of tethering and connectivity. That's our goal too. Hmm. It's so beautiful. It's like, then when you uncover your gold, you can bring it to each of those relationships. It's not just like, oh, it's in that one relationship, that one special one. Yes. You're bringing it to each of your treasured relationships. Exactly. It's all about relationships. You know, you mentioned the second half of life that phrase kind of entering the second half of life. And I don't know if this phrase shows up elsewhere, but I know that I first encountered it and you and I have talked about it in the context of Richard Rohr's book, Falling Upward, a mm-hmm. Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life, which mm. came out about 10 years ago now. He's yeah. a Franciscan priest mm-hmm. and he wrote this book about how the first half of life is kind of about trying to build a container for your life with, you know, school, job, maybe a partner, maybe a house, maybe a certain career, maybe having children, but Mm -hmm. these external things. Yes. And the second half of life is about what's inside Mm. your container. Yes. I was watching a talk that Richard Rohr gave when he was when that book had first come out and I can, I can link to it in our show notes, but there's this great quote from him in that talk. He says, you're never 100% certain you're right. When you're walking in faith, that's why it's called faith. You'd Mm. think that we'd get that, but we haven't trained people how to hold ambiguity, Mm. how to live with knowing and not knowing at the same time, how to know that God's love is so foundational so certain, so absolute, so constant, and so eternal that I can even risk making a mistake, like maybe with a podcast name. (laughs) That's my interjection. (laughs) Yes. And it's not the end of the world. That's Mm. what a second half of life person knows. So good. Can you read that last part again about making a mistake? Yes. God's love is so foundational so certain, so absolute, so constant, and so eternal that I can even risk making a mistake and it's not the end of the world. It just speaks so directly to, yes, what we started with in terms of our mistake, but also to that part of the anxious brain that is so afraid to take risk in so many realms of life, it can show up in relationships, at work, 
within friendship, it can show up anywhere that the fear of making a mistake is heightened for the sensitive, anxious, creative, spiritual personality type. And I think is what fuels a lot of anxiety, a lot of holding back, a lot of sitting on one's gifts because the fear is so great of making a mistake, but sitting in that quote, dwelling and bathing in that quote, if, if, if one could fully believe that, it would be freedom to make mistakes. If you could trust that you would still be loved, you would still be good enough, you would still be held, you would still belong, it would free us up so much to risk. And I don't think that it just has to be a second half of life. I think from a more, from a less linear, a more circular spiral mindset that we can gather that piece of gold earlier in life as you are, Victoria, as so many people that I work with are gathering these pieces of gold. I think it's one of the most extraordinary elements of being in this technological age where we have access to um, so many great thinkers, so many great teachers, mystics, poets, you know, the Richard Rohrs and the Pema Chodrons that you could only before access by books and we can access in so many different ways now that allows us to accelerate some of that learning that I think used to only happen if it happened at all in the second half of life. But it's like, this is part of the reason why I love that it's, that it's you and I, it's you and I 20 years apart, almost to the day, but to the year, 20 years apart, living life, exchanging these ideas from our different vantage points in full recognition that we both have so much wisdom to share. We both have our, our vulnerabilities to share. It's not different. It's not so different. In the span of humanity, 20 years is nothing. In the span of a human life, it seems like so much, but it's, it's, it's different and it's not. I am in a different stage of life, of course, than you are. You are in a different stage than I am. But in this, in this spirit of interconnectivity and gathering sweet grass, gathering moss and braiding sweet grass. And these, the, one of the pieces that I think is so lost in our current culture is the, is the mentor mentee apprenticeship relationships. These, the, where it's not just mentor teaching mentee that, that there's a symbiotic relationship that is important for both people. And I think we're modeling that as well, the two of us sitting here together. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing because I think what we talked about earlier, that whole idea of like, if you think too much, you can get paralyzed and never act. Mm -hmm. I know there are other people like me who in their twenties are like, I want to be a second half of life person. Like, so, oh, I guess mm. building a container is bad. So I should just, <laughs> mm. I don't know, float. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, you know, and Richard Ward talks about in the book, he's like, the, the first half is not 
bad. Containers are good and necessary. Like your ego is yes. good. It's necessary, right? You That's do right. need it. Absolutely. And, and he even says that it's not necessarily a chronological thing, like mm. your first or second half. It's, mm. it's that mindset. Yeah. And it's actually the non-duality of being able to hold both and like, okay, I just, maybe I just graduated from school. Yeah. I need to, I need to get a job for now, mm-hmm. you know, this job for now I need to, yes. I need to, um, when I'm able to pay my own rent, you know, where am I going to live? Those things are necessary, but it's, it's both. And, and it's sometimes the paralysis, like for, for the anxious, super sensitive, anxious brain that mm-hmm. wants to never make the first half mistakes and just skip right over <laughs> all of it. Yes. It can get you stuck. Yes. And that there's gold in getting a job, that there's mm-hmm. gold in paying your bills, that there's gold in finding your way, individuating from family, from parents, family of origin, learning about your own values. That's all gold. It's not linear. And yes, those are essential containers. And it's one of the things the alchemists talked about a lot was the vase was having this solid container, which is how we now talk about the therapeutic relationship of being in the room and having these containers, the 50 minutes, the, that sort of separate from life relationship that there's these containers that are essential inside which the transformation happens and the learning and the growth happens. So all of those practical aspects of life are gold. Mm. It's all because it's all how we learn. It's all how we, it's all how we grow. It's not any less shiny than the wisdom that might arise later. Yeah. I have such a distinct memory of making a mistake at 22 that was so painful Mm. and that really hurt me the most out of anyone. And my heart just like cracking open and I felt compassion in a way that I hadn't felt compassion before. Mm. Mm. Compassion for yourself? Mm. More for, it was a moment where I felt like I wanted to wrap my arms around every other girl in the world Mm. who had been in the situation that I was in. Yes. Yes. And that might be the truest gold of all that comes from suffering is, is exactly that, Victoria, that we can't have true empathy until we have walked that path of suffering, whatever it is. And that compassion, that empathy is maybe our most precious gold that connects us to each other and that we can only really speak to and feel in our hearts when we've lived it or we've been touched by somebody who has lived it, whether it's depression or obsessions and compulsions or painful experiences in relationships or sexuality, that it's, we just don't know 
we, we can't have that lived experience until we have lived it ourselves. So when I talk about that initial initiation for me, when I was 21 with the panic attacks, it's how I, it's how I know in my bones what panic attacks are. How could I truly possibly walk somebody through that if I didn't know it in my own cells, in my own lungs, in my own throat, in my own heart? Right. Anxiety, all the different strands of anxiety, that it is what connects us through that thread, that golden thread of compassion. Mm. This feels like it could be a good moment to talk about something we were talking about earlier before we started recording. Mm. But we were talking about kind of the mystery of suffering and how the approach that you're talking about isn't about glorifying suffering. Yes. And I think that's something like I have such admiration for people who are able to thread that needle of sometimes awful things happen, like inexplicable and mm-hmm. unfathomable things that we can't explain. Or the, the last thing you would want to say to someone is like, oh, everything happens for a reason. You know, like yeah. I'm really compelled by people who are able to just say, no, I don't, I don't know about that for everything. You know, yeah. there's a great podcast actually with Kate Bowler, who wrote a book called everything happens for a reason and other lies I've loved. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yeah. She just had a great episode of her podcast with the artist and writer Mari Andrew, and they've both had really, really serious illnesses that they've dealt with at very young ages. And they just talked about like being very wary of imposing a lesson or meaning, you know, on people in suffering. So it's a big sticky question. The whole it's like the the human question yes. <laughs> about suffering, but just yes. thought it'd be good to take a moment on that. So important to underscore that this isn't about glorifying suffering, blaming ourselves for suffering, um, going to that platitude of everything happens for a reason that we don't know why. A lot of the times, most times, we don't know why. But I think it's a mindset of like people who have had tremendous suffering and are able to spin it into gold in the sense that it becomes an offering in some way. It becomes some through line, um, some way in which they're able to to give to others. So... I think it's less about meaning making in the sense of this happened because of this reason and more about what's my response to it now. Mm-hmm. It's like the way we talk about um, intrusive thoughts, for example, that we don't, we don't choose those thoughts, but we choose how we respond. Right? We don't choose our feelings, but we choose how we respond. And so it's, it's a way of approaching our inner world 
our suffering, the lot that we've been handed, our wiring, our temperament through the lens of compassion, learning, curiosity, reflection. I love so much the way Daniel Siegel talks about mindset. And if anybody hasn't read that book, I, I highly, highly, highly recommend it as this sort of essential piece of being able to look at your inner world from that place of witness, that place of hub, that place of center and reflect. And it's from there that we have choice. That's how we grow that choice point so that we don't have to be taken down. Sometimes we are taken down. And that's part of the journey as well, being taken down, being on our knees in suffering. That's not separate from what we're talking about, but that, you know, over the arc of a life that we can say, oh, that happened. That was really painful. And this is, this is where I went with it. And this is where it led me. And this is how it has helped me to grow and to heal. And ultimately one hopes to be of service to others. Mm -hmm. And that's the gold. That's the goal. That's the runes of the, the mythological hero's journey going into the descent, into the underworld, gathering the runes, gathering the gold and bringing them back to the community. As an offering as the ways that we serve. And that might be the way that you serve, you know, that, that you're able to show up for your child in a different way that you're able to show. I think we have to get away from this grand idea again of being of service and this big calling and all of that. It's like we show up and we serve and we share our gifts in myriad of ways. At 22, after I had that experience, a couple of months later, it was going to be my niece's first birthday. Mm. And I wrote her a letter and gave it to my sister and said, you could give this to her when she's 13 or 14. Mm. But my letter to her was like, you are so precious and you make us so happy. Mm. But just so you know, as you grow up, even when you are not nice, and you mess up and you're not, not acting precious. <laughs> yes. I'm still going to love you. Mm. You don't always have to be, yeah. you don't always have to be a certain way for me to love you. And you can talk to me and I'll always be here for you. Yes. That is so beautiful. What a lucky niece. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah, you don't have to be any certain way. And I will still love you. And if we could approach ourselves with that same mindset. Yeah. So much healing happens. So much freedom happens. So much spaciousness happens. The whole thing sort of flips around because it becomes much less about, if at all, really, the whole, the whole idea of perfection falls away which is how we started. The whole idea of perfection falls away. There's nothing set in stone. There's no such thing as perfection. There is only 
Being human, messing up, and knowing that you still have a place of belonging, of being loved. You also shared a quote with me, and it's striking me that there's the real gold, and then there's kind of the fool's gold that Hmm. we get lured by, that sparkles. And you shared this, this quote from, I think, Robert Johnson's book about the value that we put on certain things like romantic love and celebrity and how we go looking for the gold outside. Yes. Yes. So it's this idea of projection that I talk a lot about, that Jungians talk a lot about, projection as the way by which we know what's happening in our inner world. And it can be negative projection or it can be a positive projection. I don't know that I would say that it's fool's gold. I think we attach, that might be how we see it mm-hmm. at, the, at the base level, at a literal level. It's actually our own gold. Mm-hmm. It's the true gold that we assign to these other people and think that they have something that we don't have when actually what we're seeing is our own gold projected onto the screen of their being. Mm. So this is the quote, and I shared it in a post I wrote in 2017 called Take Back Your Gold. Probably the next important evolution of Western humankind is to find a proper container for religious life so that we do not unrealistically expect another mortal human being to carry this high value. In short, Don't ask a human to be God for you. And then I wrote in the blog post, what Johnson is saying and is the essence of his book, We, The Psychology of Romantic Love, is that the aliveness we seek must be found in our own spiritual experience, whatever that means for you. For some people, that might mean a traditional religious devotional practice of following the prayers, readings, rituals, and customs of their lineage. But for many others these days for whom organized religion isn't a fit, a spiritual experience may come through creativity, connection to nature, working with dreams, meditation, ecstatic dance, their own innovative prayer practice, and a hundred other ways. What matters is that we stop projecting our gold onto other humans, real or imagined, and instead reel in the projection and claim what is rightfully ours. The gold is our aliveness. The gold is our magic. The gold is our purpose. The gold is the voice that says yes and wow and hallelujah. The gold is our compass, how we know ourselves and trust ourselves. The gold is our passion. The gold is what makes every day worth living. Hmm. It's so beautiful. So this is what we're, we're gathering here, Victoria. This is our new name, 
our, our re-envisioned um, framework, vessel, container, vase that we, um, that we had to spend some time in that first half of life in our, in our conversations with each other, the first half of life mindset mm-hmm. that I think applies really to every new endeavor requires some groundwork. Um, we are, we are here in this vessel and this container together in this podcast to, to gather gold with each other, to bring that gold to our listeners, to hopefully help them reel back in those projections, to claim what is rightfully theirs, to recognize that the treasure is in your own garden. It is not out there. It is in your own beautiful garden right before you. That is such a beautiful way to end. Thank you, Victoria. And thank you everybody for listening. Thank you. And if people want to find you and your work online, where should they go? Yes, you can find me on my website, which is conscious-transitions.com and on Instagram at Wisdom of Anxiety. You can also check out my other podcast, Perennials, conversations about growing up, getting wise, and trying to live a good life. And you can find me on Instagram at Perennials Podcast. And if you're enjoying Gathering Gold, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate the show, leave a review, and share it with a friend if you know someone that you think might enjoy. Thanks so much for listening.